0: Talks, a Chat with Finance Malta is the podcast series that gives you short, thoughtful and regular insights from leading experts of the financial services industry. I'm Vanessa MacDonald, welcome. The European Banking Federation has been rather concerned about low growth in capital markets. What is the solution and what is holding it back?
1: Uh, Well, that is uh, a long-standing feature of the European uh, financial sector um, that uh, has been uh, very much dependent on bank funding, and this is still the case, which has pros and cons, because, of course, the European banking sector has always been there fueling the European economy, which is a good thing, but at the same time, we lack the capacity of other financial sources to finance the European economy. Now, having said that, there have been initiatives in the last decade, especially after the great financial crisis, uh, to uh, create a capital markets union. That would be absolutely interesting also for banks, because it would unlock the capacity of European investments, to be used uh, to uh, finance uh, European enterprises. However, what is uh, locking uh, this uh, potential has to do also with uh, the mobilization of the balance sheets in the European banking sector, which are the biggest in, in the world. The European banking sector is the biggest, meaning there is a lot of financial power that is kept on the balance sheet of european banks and to unlock that capacity we would need to revive the securitization market in europe that is the first thing we should do sometimes we see that uh, policy makers look at the final objective which is to have a capital markets union and that is fair and of course it is necessary but we need also to look at the stepping stones until we get there. And the first one is to let European banks mobilize their balance sheets via securitization. What is the problem here is that securitization, the whole term comes with a stigma because we all know it was at the core of the financial crisis in 2008, but it was the wrong type of the securitization placed in the wrong clients you will remember those subprime securitization vehicles that were parked mm. in the u.s with u.s subprime and then they were sold all over the world and many of them were placed in countries that have a very high saving rate meaning a lot of european banks but we've turned the page i think in the policy making community uh, let's remember, in, as far as 2014, there was a very interesting paper by the European Central Bank and the Bank of England with a roadmap on how to revive the securitization market in Europe. Uh, in that route, we, we found that it was necessary to stimulate securitisation in the balance sheet of banks because after all, the major holders of securitization uh, bonds are banks themselves. So in a way, it facilitates the conversion of a very, uh, yeah uh, 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 the stack of uh, mortgage lending that is uh, committed to the very long term, like 25 or 30 years, can be shortened and mobilized and traded in the market if it is properly securitized. And also corporate loans and SME finance as well, so that other investors can take that risk that is uh, properly securitized in different tranches. So there was the initiative of of the um, simple uh, transactions of securitization that has helped, but not sufficiently. The fact is that European issuance of securitization was around 800 billion. Uh, In the years before the financial crisis, and now it is depressed, only about 250 billion. At the same time, we've seen how in the US it has grown from more or less the same level before the crisis to a level of more than 3 trillion. That, of course, we need to take into account that in the US they have the agencies, uh, meaning the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that take hold of. the majority of secretizations but even though the private securitizations are also very important so first of all we need to stimulate that secretization market by fine-tuning parts of that regulation and that can be done in the completion of the banking package in our opinion during the trial that will take place in 2023
0: um the european uh Banking Federation was actually one of nine trade associations that actually wrote to Murray McGuinness in November 2022, asking for reform. Have you, has there been any feedback? Bearing in mind, obviously, that um, it's quite, quite early.
1: Yeah, no, we are very much talking with uh, Digifisma. Commissioner McGuinness is a very open commissioner, we have to say, and her team as well. Uh, However, things are more complex. Uh, We have a good understanding at conceptual level. Now we need to take it to the next level which is a pragmatic change in the regulation which involves also other co-legislators including the Council and of course the European Parliament. That is a little bit less technical in the uh, the perspective but absolutely important uh, to make things happen. So uh, in order to have the right changes in the regulation that can make securitization economically efficient for banks, we just need to fine-tune parts of that regulation. One of them is the so-called capital neutrality. What this means? It means that for a bank to be interested in a securitization, the capital consumption has to be no higher than if the bank would keep those loans until maturity on the balance sheet. So that needs a a, a stimulation in order to make economic sense, otherwise banks would never securitize. That's an an obvious question.
0: Let's have a look at the challenges to the banking sector, which, as you said, has um, had to face all the, the problems since the financial crisis, but apparently is now happily uh, at acceptable levels of resilience barring any any further shocks to the system however there are two challenges one is the innovation which is resulting in in payment facilities which are not as heavily regulated as the banking sector and on the flip side of the coin customers are obviously benefiting from all of this digital finance and so on, but they don't have the same protection, levels of protection that they have. So let's talk about those two aspects, perhaps starting with the fact that, you know, all this disruption um, is resulting in a, in a very ill-level, unlevel playing field for banks.
1: Uh, yes, and thank you for the question, Vanessa. You're uh, totally right in your formulation, but uh, let me... Let me qualify a little bit that level of resilience. Uh, in my opinion, it is not just acceptable, but it's quite strong. So the, uh, we can talk about that. This is a different story, but uh, look at the pandemic that put to the test the resilience of the banking sector and the result was successful. Obviously, with a combined policy reaction together with the public sector, but after all, the, bank, uh, the bank sy- banking system was able to absorb the shock and at the same time keep on lending to the economy in order to avoid a credit crunch. Uh, but when it comes to innovation, of course, uh, the challenge is there. Uh, I, first of all, let me say that the banking sector has always been engaging in technological transformation. That's a long story. Uh, So, uh, you've touched two points which are quite new. Because uh, if I look, uh, for instance, backwards to the 90s, that was really a revolutionary period in terms of technological transformation. Because we passed from manual processes to automation. And we also put in place uh, credit scoring systems and these uh, risk based return on equity models but those were for banks to compete between themselves, meaning the banks that were more advanced had an advantage over the rest. Now, competition in the technological field is taking place between banks and non-banks. And there is where the problem of level playing field lies, because, uh, yeah, because they are not subject to the same regulations and the same uh, supervision so that is uh, a point uh, we are making in the in the banking sector uh, because there is a need to balance uh, here three objectives on the one hand innovation to, uh, to to facilitate the competitive profile of banks then there is a, an objective of stability because with innovation uh, also comes uh, some new threats to stability like cybersecurity and uh, other other new threats, and finally uh, protection, data protection and protection of consumers. Uh, Let me start with this this last objective. Uh, Europe holds high the value of personal data and also the protection of fundamental rights of consumers. So there is no doubt there is a stricter GDPR in Europe than in other jurisdictions and many of the big tech we are competing with of course they are present in Europe but uh, they are headquartered out of Europe so they have a different uh, regime secondly the question of innovation uh, also brings the need to have new types of employees in banking and uh, there is a difficulty uh, f- uh, for banks to hire IT skilled employees that comes together with the stricter rules of uh, what is called governance of material risk-takers and so on, rules that came out of the financial crisis. However, these new IT-skilled employees have nothing to do with risk-taking, with trading, because their, their function is other. So Banks also need to attract that talent in order to, to compete. And um, finally, the question of level playing field is, is, is very, uh, very important in terms of regulation. Regulation now is one of the major constraints to business in financial services, and we think that the same activity and the same risk should be subject to the same regulation and the same supervision, what is uh, not the case in Europe today depending on whether a player is acting under the label of bank, therefore in the perimeter of a supervision and regulation, or out of that perimeter without being subject to the same conditions.
0: So what is the solution? I mean, is anything actually being done? Are your voices being heard on this?
1: Um, our voices are being heard, however, when it comes to put it in practice, it is a bit more complex. Because the structure of uh, supervision and regulation is built long time ago at global level with institutions like uh, the Basel Committee or the Financial Stability Board, whose mandate is to regulate banks, right? But not non banking institutions. However, uh, I mean, the direction of travel is also to look at the risk uh, posed by uh, FinTech and big tech, and we know that the Financial Stability Board is taking steps in that direction. However, as you know, the market is much faster than the capacity of the regulatory community to react. So we are doing the right thing. We would ask to speed up in that process. On the one hand, uh, to, as I mentioned, to. To, to place the same regulatory and supervisory requirements, and on the other hand, to ease off a little bit the straitjacket for banks. As you mentioned, uh, the, 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 the PSD2 is a good example that is constraining very much the access to data for banks, but not for other players. So, we also need to think that uh, banks uh, should be given also the same uh, conditions uh, to access data as other players are doing.
0: If we look at it from the customer protection side, then it becomes even more of an issue because um, perhaps it's a lack of financial literacy, but certainly there don't seem to be as many fail safes, Um, there isn't a, a depositor compensation fund for people dealing in, in, in fintech, for example, in cryptocurrencies and so on. So is, is that something that we should be looking at? Is that something that you feel is uh, being overlooked?
1: Um, uh, of course, you have a point that uh, when uh, it comes to other different forms of investment or saving, now we need to distinguish what is, what is an, an investment and what is a saving. Because at the core of it is that uh, an investment is in principle is not subject to a a deposit uh, guarantee fund because it is uh, backed by the assets themselves, if you look at a typical investment fund. However, a saving is a cryptocurrency, an investment or a saving, that is the first question we need to look at. But in any case, when it comes to the use of deposit guarantee funds, we need to take into account that they have a long history, meaning that banks have been investing in those deposit guarantee funds for long years. So it is as uh, when, uh, when there is a new shareholder in a company, uh, you, you know, the, the existing shareholders have, have a right, have rights, you know. So uh, you cannot open those deposit guarantee funds to any newcomer that has not contributed to them uh, easily, right, so uh, there should be a fundamental consideration of what credit protection is for meaning the type of products that should be in scope, and secondly, the contribution of the institutions that are part of those uh, deposit guarantee funds, in order to make sure that there is a fair uh, result in that uh, contribution.
0: So, perhaps at this stage, the most important thing is financial literacy. So that customers are aware of what they actually, what their rights are, and, and what would happen in the case of default.
1: Yes, I would totally agree with that. I mean, it's not the same to have your savings in a bank that are protected up in Europe up to the uh, the, the 100,000 threshold that was agreed by uh, by the governments in Europe a time ago. It's not the same that that investing in a crypto asset in a non-banking financial institution, obviously. This uh, difference has to be made totally clear for the clients.
0: Does this mean that basically there's always going to be a role for banks to play? um, Unless the, the, the fintech sector is regulated, is this going to be the strength or is it going to be the demise of the banking sector?
1: Well, the, 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 the question is uh, we start from a situation where there are differences in, in, the, in the scope and perimeter of regulation. So what we have to do is to converge. Mm. You cannot change the past, but at least you can design a future where there is equivalent supervision an equivalent regulation and a lot of transparency and full understanding by the clients. So in that uh, in, a, in that roadmap, uh, we shouldn't uh, wait too long. We have to speed up that process and be very attentive because the market is moving uh, very fast.
0: One of the solutions which has been brought up over the last uh, well few years really and is still on the horizon is the digital euro, which seems or the central bank um, currency, uh, which seems to be the solution to try and find something which is still regulated, but is still fintech. What is your take on that? Uh,
1: Well, that's a big issue. Uh, Digital currencies is uh, the new trend. Uh, Of course, we understand that uh, a central bank, uh, like the European Central Bank, uh, cannot uh, cannot ignore what is happening and they should also be prepared uh, for a future where digital currencies uh, will be increasingly important. Therefore, it is perfectly understandable that they are uh, already uh, flexing their muscles uh, for what is coming, um, potentially in the form of a digital euro. Now, having said that, a digital euro has repercussions. It's a new kid in the block and uh, that that will uh, change uh, the, uh, the status quo of uh, savings in the financial sector. Uh, so yes, if, to as be... soon as you
0: start talking about a currency uh, where to try and protect banks and the t- traditional banking sector with all its um, strength and so on, they were talking about having digital currencies where people would only be allowed to buy a certain amount of currency, a few thousand for example, so that it doesn't disrupt the traditional saving deposit model. So, how can it work? I mean, I can't understand how they can introduce it without disrupting the whole banking sector.
1: Well, there is no precedent to a digital currency. Okay, So there are many features there that we need to look at.
0: There's the Chinese model, but mm, yeah. (laughs) yeah, There
1: is the Chinese model, but it's not totally an open market model like as the one we have in Europe. Uh, Therefore, there would be a distinction between a digital currency that would be backed by the European Central Bank, therefore by the highest credit worthiness possible in the market, and then the, uh, the traditional deposits in the banking sector, which are backed by the governments. But yes. let's not forget that being backed by the governments it depends on which government, of course. And uh, at the end if we introduce there a difference of, uh, of credit worthiness of the counterparty, that is a major change. Then you talk about limits. Uh, We need to distinguish here between two functions of digital euro. One would be as a method of payment, which can be very useful, of course, and uh, the other one would be as a store of value. So when we talk about uh, savings, a store of value, thousands is a big word, it's a big number. So let me me put, for for example, just uh, some numbers on the back of an envelope. In Europe, we are about 350 uh, million citizens. There was this 3,000 threshold that was uh, entertained in some conversations. I don't know if it was very formal or not, but the, the figure came up. If you do very easy numbers, that would bring you to a maximum of 1 trillion euro. And that is a lot if we detract that amount from the current savings of the banking sector, because that is the stable funding that is holding the mortgages in the long term. So we are talking about big numbers here. On the other hand, 3,000 euro is quite a lot. I mean, in the internet, you typically buy a pair of shoes, okay, but it could be 70, 80, 100 euro, Right? But uh, I mean, for big uh, purchases, uh, you have other means uh, in, the, in the meantime. Let me remind you 20 years ago, there were these electronic wallets at the beginning, the banking sector. So, what we did in the banking sector is to be cautious at the beginning. So, you would only be able to transfer 100 euros at the beginning to your electronic wallet. And then, with the pass of time, as it proved uh, secure and also other features were improved and fine-tuned, then it grew to higher levels. So our recommendation here is to take baby steps. Why should you start with X thousand euro? You can perfectly put this uh, digital euro to the test with 300 or 400 euro. That wouldn't mean upfront a very big threat. And then you can, of course, scale it up as you gain experience and you secure that the, 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 the transformation from a traditional deposits to digital euro can be done without taking on too much risk.
0: That's all for today. Subscribe now to the FinTalks and follow Finance Malta on all social media platforms to stay updated with all our activities. Till the next podcast.